today. John chapter 12 is a pivotal moment in the ministry of Jesus. This is, this is one of those key moments in history. Uh, as I said, he has raised Lazarus from the dead. He's been anointed by Mary. When, he di- when, she, when she pours the oil over him, some of them are a bit upset, but Jesus says, ah, she's doing it for my burial. He comes into the city of Jerusalem. The crowds are going wild. The Jewish leaders, they literally say the whole world has gone after him. And we pick the story up in verse 20, uh, possibly a, a few days after Jesus has made that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey with the crowd saying, here comes the king, hallelujah. And there were some Greeks in town for the festival, for the Passover. Um, Margaret's stepped out, but uh, she might be disappointed to know that they are not necessarily Greek Greeks. Um, code word for foreigners. Basically, there's some non-Jews, people from the world, coming and wanting to see Jesus. They, they were probably God-fearers. God-fearers, people like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, uh, who Peter goes to see. Peter has a vision in Acts um, uh, God says, eat, and Peter says, ah, that stuff's, you know, illegal for us Jews. And God says, ah, if I call something clean, it's clean. Eventually, Peter goes and visits Cornelius, who is a God-fearer. A God-fearer is a non-Jew who sees something in Judaism that speaks of truth and reality. And they want it, but they're not willing to totally commit to that. They're not willing to become Jewish, but they're kind of sitting on the edges going, I want that, I want that, I want that, but ah! If you're a man, you might understand that there are some reasons why you might be a little bit hesitant to become fully Jewish. I mean, you had to have surgery, for one thing. When Peter visited Cornelius, this, this god here, it was a big deal. Because Jews, good Jews, did not hang out with Greeks. Greeks were unclean. They were dirty. They were ugh. Even the ones that were, that were nice, and even the ones who feared God, they were just not quite kosher. And here we find some of these non-Jews, some of these, these Greeks wanting to meet Jesus. It's possible that they have heard what Jesus did after coming into Jerusalem. Uh, Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke tell us about Jesus clearing the temple. He goes into the temple, they're selling all sorts of stuff. Jesus takes a whip and is turning tables over and he's saying, Ah, you've made this into, into a marketplace. My house, my father's house is meant to be a place of prayer for all nations. Maybe they heard about that and they thought, Ooh, what's this all nations thing? This, this Jesus is maybe someone we want to, we want to find out about. And so they approached Philip. And there's a reason, I think, why they approached Philip. Because Philip, it's a great name, that is. Philip is one of those people who has a very Greek-sounding name. It sounds foreign. Plus, Philip comes from Bethsaida. Bethsaida is a very Greeky part of, of Israel. It's, it's kind of right there, and your neighbors are all Greeks. And so maybe, maybe he is one of those Jews who will be a little bit more understanding of us Greeky 
people because, you know, he grew up with us. And maybe he won't just slam the door in our face. But it's interesting that, as I said, Philip's not 100% sure what to do. What do I do with these non-Jews who want to see Jesus? Is, is this right? Is this okay? And, and so he goes to, uh, to Andrew, and, and Andrew probably looks at him and goes, well, I don't know. Why do you think I would know that? And together, they go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, there's these, these blokes who want to see you. And hearing about these Greek seekers... Jesus says, it's time. It's time. The hour has come. It's time. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't, we're not told that Jesus actually speaks to them at this point. But their coming for Jesus is like a signpost, a checkpoint that says, now things change. The whole world is coming, as the priests said. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus' focus was on the lost sheep of Israel. Matthew 15, uh, if we can throw that one up, Kate. Uh, Matthew chapter 15, verse 23, 24 says, uh, Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to, God, to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. That, that was Jesus' main focus during his earthly ministry. But, but God's plan goes so much wider than just the people of Israel. John 3.16, you guys know that one. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God's plan is for all nations of the world. In fact, if you go right back, way back when, to the time when God called Abraham and he said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you so much. You're going to know me. And through you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And I think Jesus is saying, now is the time for that to happen. Now is the hour when everything changes. Now is the hour when everything becomes new. Now the hour to act has come. Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the hour for the Son of Man to die in our place. Now is the time when Jesus takes the sins of the world, not just the Jews, onto himself. Now is the time when the prince of this world is taken out and cast out and, and undone. Now is the time when the dividing wall between people is broken down. Now is the time when the dividing wall between us and God is destroyed. That wall that if we cross it, we die. We cannot stand in the presence of a holy God and survive by ourselves. You might not know it, but... Uh, in the temple in Jerusalem, the Gentiles, the, the Greeks, could go to an outer court. And there was this little wall that if they went past that wall, they did so on the pain of death. Because they weren't good enough to go into the presence of God. Well, I think the Bible's message is that all of us are not good enough to go into the presence of God. And now is the hour when God acts to change that. You see, these, these Greeks come and they say, we want to see Jesus, but I think Jesus' response says that we need more than just to see Jesus, we need Jesus himself. Because he goes and explains what he's on about. He uses this 
analogy of a kernel of wheat, uh, a seed has to die. You have to bury it. It has to go into the ground. But in dying, the seed brings many new kernels. It brings much new life. In the same way, I think Jesus is saying that Him, He, the Father, He is most glorified, most radiant, most wonderful, most amazing through His death. Jesus alone lived a perfect life. God become man, but God wants more than just Jesus' perfect life. God's desire, and God does have desires, God's desire is that all people should turn to Him. Peter writes that, that God is not willing that any should perish. God doesn't want us to die. God wants us to be alive, and so He sends Jesus to die so that His death, His burial, brings us life, so that He can take our sin, our guilt, our punishment, our shame in our place for us. And that's the way of God's kingdom. That God's kingdom is the kingdom of giving. And Jesus says there in John chapter 12, those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. If we want to serve Jesus, his way of not holding on to life, this life is our blueprint. Jesus didn't live for this life. He lived for the glory of God. He lived for God's will to be done. We see that all the way through. We see that right at the very start in Jesus' temptations. He's tempted for this life and each time he says, no, my eyes are on God. He doesn't literally say that, but that's, that's the effect of what he says. He focuses on what God wants. He focuses on who God is. His eyes, his gaze is in eternity. Does anyone here watch The Martian? Or read the book, The Martian? It's a, it's a language warning. There's a bit of language in it. But it's a, it's a really fascinating movie. It's about a Martian. It's not about an alien. It's about a human. It's about a human who goes on a mission to Mars. Uh, every, things go bad. Uh, the, the, the mission has to be scrubbed. They get in their rocket. They fly out. But unfortunately, they all think he's dead. And he's left behind. And it's a story. It's basically Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Um, so he's stuck there on Mars. And all that he's got... Uh, they, they can get to him in about a year's time, I think a year and a half. All he's got is, you know, enough potatoes to eat for 30 days. And then he'll die. Fortunately, he's a biologist. Unfortunately, he's not a good one because it's not really scientific what he does. But the point is, he can choose to eat his 30 potatoes over 30 days and then die. Or he can choose to take those potatoes and put them in the ground and Science it up and grow potatoes for the next year. Anyone want to guess which one he chose? 
He planted them. If you eat your potatoes, you might be full, but then you will die. That's what Jesus is saying. If you live for this life, you can have a fantastic time, but then it's the end. And Jesus goes that step further and he says, I am the one who in my dying, in my being planted in the ground, in my being buried, I give life to you. Jesus is unique. His, his death is unique. His life is unique. Um, we can't do the same thing. We can't, I can't die so that the bell can live. Quite frankly, my dying is not even enough to pay off my debts. It's a very emotional moment. But Jesus does say, I want you to be where I am if you are my servants. I want you to take up your cross. I want you to follow me. I want you to hold on to your life lightly. And I want you to live like me with eternity in mind. If we are constantly chasing the things of the now, which is, by the way, what Satan loves to get us to focus on, and where our own evil desires focus on, if we focus on what we can see now, if we live for now, now is what we get. If we live for eternity, eternity is what we get. If we're Jesus' servants, then his priority should be our priority. And his priority is the glory of God's name. He wants to honor God no matter the cost now, knowing that God is worth it. In fact, Jesus says it is worth living like that. The Father honors those who serve him. And the Father, verse 26, will honor anyone who serves me. Following Jesus is costly. It involves saying no to some stuff here. But only because it means saying yes to God in eternity. That's really easy to do, isn't it? Hands up if it's easy. Boy, bunch of sinners. That's not easy, is it? Have a listen to this. Verse 27. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Most of our translations, including this one, put Jesus uh, saying a hypothetical question. Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? You can translate it that way, but you can also translate it, Jesus saying a statement there. Now I am deeply troubled. Father, save me from this hour. But no, I came for this hour. I, I, I think New Living Translation here has, has tidied it up. It's not a question. I don't think Jesus is saying, of course I would never say, Father, save me from this hour. I think Jesus is literally struggling here. Struggling with the God, save me, I don't want to do this. I don't want 
to die. I don't want to bear the weight of the world's sins on my shoulders. The reason I think that is because when Jesus goes to Gethsemane, the place where Judas found him and betrayed him, he goes there and he prays and he says exactly that, save me from this hour. But not what I want, what you want, Father. This is Jesus doing that. This is Jesus saying to them, guys, I am going to, I'm going to sacrifice myself. I'm going to, I'm going to die so that you can live. And it, it's something I'm struggling with. Don't take that lightly where Jesus says, now my soul is deeply troubled. This is genuine anguish. I don't think Jesus was joyfully looking forward to going on a cross and bearing the weight of our sins. I don't think anyone would look forward to that. I don't think he was looking forward to feeling as if God had abandoned him. He wanted God to save him from this hour. But he wanted to honor God more. that's, That's the thing here. He wanted to glorify God more. Jesus persevered because his view was set in eternity. His view was set on God's will. And because he trusted his Father, he knew that he was ultimately safe. He was willing to sacrifice everything now because his eyes were not focused on now. His eyes were focused on God and in eternity. And it's easy to say, to stand up the front and say, brothers and sisters, uh, say no to this world. Focus on Jesus. uh, Do whatever it takes. Resist the devil. It's easy to say those things. But if you've been a Christian for more than about three seconds, you probably realize that it's something we struggle with. I want to say to myself and to you, take heart today, because Jesus said, my heart is deeply troubled by this. But Jesus' example for us is also this. To not pretend like that is not the case. To call it out, to say it out, and then to keep our eyes fixed on God. Because if our eyes are on God and God's glory, it doesn't make it easy. It doesn't mean that Jesus was suddenly trouble-free. This happened before the Garden of Gethsemane. But it makes it possible to persevere. It makes saying no to something is impossible unless you have said yes to something else first. (coughs) Jesus says yes to God first. You and I are called to be where Jesus is. We are called to sacrificially love with God's love. To put God first in our lives, above ourselves, above our family, above our work, above our church, above everyone else. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you. That might look like you saying no to things in your life. It might, it, 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 it's of course to do with uh, the temptation to escape. It's also to do maybe with living on less 
to support a missionary. It maybe means giving up what I have so that others can have. Last Sunday night we looked at uh, the story of Barnabas, Ananias and Sapphira and Barnabas who sold the field and gave the money so that the rest of the people in the church who were struggling didn't have to struggle. It might mean showing love to your family even when you just want to be alone. It might mean giving up time to invest in someone else's life. It might mean risking a friendship to tell others about Jesus. Uh, It might mean not getting a new car so that you can support your family. Following Jesus in keeping our eyes fixed on eternity flows through all of our life. The good things, the bad things, the easy things, the difficult things. And that's one of the reasons why we need to be encouraging each other. It's one of the reasons we need to be spending time with God. It's one of the reasons we need to be reading the Bible or listening to the Bible. Because our eyes keep focusing on today. And it's only when we fix our gaze on Jesus that we can be, have our gaze lifted from now and set on eternity. And it's only when we have our eyes fixed on eternity and the glory of God that we can live like Jesus by the Spirit's help. Jesus was troubled, but his overarching desire was to see God glorified. And he says that. He says, Father, glorify your name. Make your name the most special name in the whole world. May everyone look at that and go, wow, God, you are amazing. And John tells us that that God answers. He says, I have, and I will. There are some there who think it's just thunder, and, and some there who are convinced that an angel has spoken to Jesus and and it's interesting, Jesus is answering, he says to them, guys, don't think that God was answering me as if I needed the reassurance, because like my, my eyes are set on God. I, I know that he will glorify his name. This, this answer was for you. Why did God speak? I wonder if God spoke so that Everyone knew that this was really God at work. Maybe this is also a sign that eternity is not just some airy-fairy pie in the sky idea, that God the Father is not just some distant unknown being, but that he is active in this world. Keeping our eyes set on eternity doesn't mean taking our focus off this world. It means seeing God at work here and now and looking forward to what God is going to be doing really doing. It's not about imagining our problems away, it's about realizing God's plans and purposes. I think God wants us to know that this is the climactic hour in the universe. Jesus goes on to say that this is judgment day. This is the day when Satan falls. Even as Jesus is lifted up, Satan is thrown down 
defeated by his attempt to defeat Jesus, biting off more than he can chew. Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself. Not, not all individuals necessarily, but people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, seeing Jesus dying in their place. And you remember where we started with some Greek men coming and saying, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus is taking us on this journey of, I'm going to die, the hour has come. And when I'm lifted up, all nations, all people will be drawn to me. Not just a few Greeks who've heard the stories and the rumors and want to find out more, but all people can come. And the crowd is confused. Their view of a rescuer. They, they, they say, no, no, we, we understand from the laws, uh, the, the, you know, the Old Testament law, it, it said that the Messiah would live forever and, and reign forever. And now you're talking about dying. Who is the Son of Man? Doesn't doesn't jail for us? Do you know why it doesn't jail for him? Because they like us, their focus was on now, on today. If the Messiah reigns forever, it means here, now, in time. <laughs> their eyes were not on God, their eyes were on this world. In a sense, they are blind to God's reality. John starts his gospel by saying that Jesus is the light, the light sent into darkness. He came to his own, but even his own didn't recognize him. But to those who did, he gave the right to the children of God. And here Jesus says to his guys, I'm not here, I'm living the light. The light that lets you see that there is more to life. The light that comes from God, the light that shows you the future, God's future. Jesus says, Will you, basically, he says, Will you trust Jesus? Or will you keep on living as if this world is all that there is? And I know most of you here have been Christians for donkey's years and donkey's years. It's a question we've got to ask ourselves. Where are our eyes set? Where is our heart set? What are we looking for? Let's pray. God, so often we, we find ourselves captivated by the things of this world. Lord, we, we think that this world is all that we We expect everything good to happen in this life. And when it doesn't, we get frustrated with you and we get confused at you. Lord, sometimes we believe Satan's lie that, that this world is all that we And so we we despise your Lord. We despise your love. But God, today and this morning we come together as a church to say that you are our God. 
At the hour of his coming, he did die Jesus and he rose to life again. And that this world, as amazing as it is, is not all that there is. Lord, we long for the day when heaven and earth become one. But until that day comes, would you help us to set our eyes on you? In everything and at every moment, God, may everything we do be based on who you are and on your eternal throne. Thank you. Amen. We're going to stand, we're going to sing, Our God is Greater, after Margaret uh, reminds me that we're going to take up the offering. Uh, what we'll do is I'll, I'll put the offering bag at the back there. You can do it while we do morning tea. We're going to sing, Our God is Greater, Our God is Stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Let's stand. Let's sing together.